0: Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Conversations for Life. Uh, Today, Kathleen and I are going to be talking about one of the things that is, is quite frankly, a pretty sensitive topic for a lot of folks and a really important topic. We're going to be talking about misogyny uh, in the Bible. And does the Bible teach or support or, at best, just silent on um, a misogynistic view of women? Misogyny is a a Greek word uh, that, that basically just denotes contempt for women or even outright hatred of women. And so, um, you know, does the Bible teach that? Does the Bible support that? And what we should say is regardless of what the Bible does actually say, which we're going to get to in a minute, I, I'm, I'm going to say no, no, it doesn't uh, teach that or support that. But but despite that, it's, it's undeniable that people, uh, both in the past and even today, have used the Bible to justify and to promote misogynistic views. You know, views that Uh, women are less valuable than men, that women have less status, that they're less intelligent, that it's okay for women to be treated in certain oppressive or abusive ways, and many more of these kinds of misogynistic views uh, have been promoted throughout history um, and justified uh, by people claiming that the Bible supports it.
1: Yeah, and I know for many women today, including myself, we wrestle with that history of abuse of Scripture's teachings while at the same time desiring to understand what the Bible actually teaches. Hmm. Uh, There are some passages that can seem hostile to women, especially for those who've experienced some kind of abuse of authority in the church or in the home. But for Christians who love and follow God, we want to know what is true. Hmm. What is scripture saying and what is it not saying? We know that God is good and that his word is breathed out by him and it's true and helpful. And for some of us, of course, you're you're trying to believe that, you're wanting to believe that, but some of the passages we read in Scripture, they are hard to understand.
0: Yeah, and I would I would like to add that for these reasons, as you just mentioned, um, these issues don't just concern women. You know, they're very important for men too, because all believers need to be able to. Uh, uh, understand their own scriptures, and then answer questions of those uh, around them who might be wondering, well, what does the Bible teach? And, you know, go to any college campus in America or any workplace, and I think you're going to find a a common belief that the Bible does support a patriarchal, uh, misogynistic attitude towards women. So this discussion that we're having, uh, I think is really important for anyone, uh, because we want to be able to answer those kinds of questions that are out there.
1: Yeah, and one of the reasons the Bible can seem misogynistic is because, especially in the Old Testament, we have story after story of horrible things happening to women, and sometimes the text seems silent at best, Mm. or at worst, it seems like it's supportive of it. So, you know, we have Abraham passing off his wife Sarah as his sister, and she's almost taken into a king's harem. Mm. And then Abraham sleeps with his servant Hagar, who's not his wife. Uh, we have Lot. When, when his family's still living in Sodom um, and men come pounding on his door, clamoring to get inside and rape his visitors, he sends his daughters out to pacify them.
0: Yeah, that's one of the worst ones, I think.
1: That's pretty bad. Of course, on a side note, his daughters actually kind of reverse that crime when they essentially drug rape him later on. So <laughs> the Bible is very graphic.
0: Next on Family um, Worship Hour.
1: Right. Don't put that into precious moments. Um and you know, Jacob, he marries two sisters, Leah and Rachel, and then he takes on two additional servants as wives, too. And hmm. and he's the father of Israel. And we have King David raping Bathsheba and murdering her husband. And and then um, you know she loses the child as a result. Um, hmm. and David is actually described as a man after God's own heart. And then King Solomon has hundreds of wives and concubines. And this of course is is an affront to the God who said let a man leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh.
0: Yeah, and these are all, of course, some of the, the most well-known and often cited examples. But as we know, there, there, there are plenty of examples loaded throughout all of Scripture um, that, that might on the surface appear to support or at best be silent about a misogynistic view towards women. And we don't have the, the, the time today to break down Every single one of these passages in detail. And so I think what would be really helpful for our listeners is is to kind of just provide what I think is a helpful framework so that when you're reading a particular story, you at least have some ideas of maybe how to approach uh, these kinds of passages. And uh, a lot of folks, including me, find it helpful that the framework to use is one called uh, Creation, Fall, Redemption, Consummation. And it's a way of breaking down Uh, The the, the whole biblical story into four parts. You have creation, which is Genesis 1 and 2, where God made the world and all things in it, and God declares it good, and it's perfect, and it's sinless. And then the fall is in Genesis 3, and that just describes Adam and Eve as God's uh, stewards over creation. They rebel against him. They reject him. they they do what he had forbidden them to do they eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and the consequence is not only are they uh facing judgment and sin for it but the whole earth is now put into futility and its purpose is frustrated and there's sin and there's death but then god doesn't leave mankind um in that state that beginning even in genesis uh, 3 and onward, we see god beginning to redeem uh his people and his creation and that, of course, comes to a climax with Jesus on the cross. And so all the, the majority of the scriptures are telling us that story of redemption, but the, the backdrop is God, God is redeeming a fallen creation, a fallen humanity. And then the end point, the final point that the Bible is still looking forward to, we're still looking forward to it today, is what's called consummation, which is when Jesus comes back, and there's a final day of judgment, and then there's a new heavens and a new earth. Now, in that in that four-part view of scripture, That If if we hold to that, it helps us see when we're reading a particular story, how to see it through the lens of of, um, what God is doing and where we are in the cosmic story. And so, for example, with creation, because it depicts the world as made by God and is operating according to his design, um, then that's the first place we should go to when we're asking the question, how does God or the Bible view women? You know, especially uh, anyone who has that question and they want to know what God thinks about them, their, their value and their worth and their identity, their status uh, before God and, and before uh, uh, men. Well, Genesis 1 and 2, they are the anchor. Uh, they, are, they are the answer full stop as to what God thinks about women and their worth. And what we find here in Genesis 1 and 2 is a profoundly unique to only the Bible and all the world positive view of women.
1: Yes, and that is vitally true. We, we need to see Genesis 1 and 2 as our anchor. So in the passage we looked at last week when we were talking about the body, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, men and women are both made in the image of God. And the text actually goes to great lengths to specify both men and women uh, being made in God's image. Mm-hmm. So in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it says that God created man, which is a reference to humankind, in his image. And then it says specifically male and female. Hmm. So God is clear that women are of equal value, worth, and dignity to men. They are image bearers just like men, and they share an equal part in fulfilling God's purpose for human beings of being conduits of God's character in all the earth.
0: Yeah, you know, and what I what I love about 127, that verse that you just quoted, is that it does two things really well. First of all, it emphasizes that both men and women are equally made in God's image, and so they stand together in, in equal value and identity and worth before God. But what I also love is that by specifically highlighting that that you know, he makes them male and female in his images, it's not only saying they have equal value and worth, it's also saying that the man, as an image-bearer of God, is unique, um, and he glorifies God in unique ways as a man. And that also, for our discussion today, what's important is that women, that they, as as, as image-bearers of God, they also are unique uh, as women. So, so they, there are unique ways that women who are as conduits of God's character, that they uniquely express God's character on earth. And these are ways that men are not designed or tasked to do, so women have a unique role and privilege as women doing womanly things of channeling God's character into the world.
1: Yeah, and this was a radical viewpoint in the ancient world because women were often considered more like property than persons and certainly not equal in value or ability to men. And frankly, it's a radical viewpoint even today too. You know, we live here in our culture uh, where actual fem- femininity is despised often, and where if women don't act like men, they're not seen. They're seen as not being strong, and where men and women are posited to be interchangeable. Um, and that's not even bringing up the fact that in certain countries, girls are aborted or even murdered after birth at an alarming rate because girls are just not valued as highly as boys. Mm. So the Bible, when it comes to communicating God's design and will for women, is unmistakable that women have worth and dignity as image bearers of God, equal Mm. to men, and they have a unique role to play in fulfilling God's purpose for human beings on earth.
0: And let's not forget that in Genesis 2, uh, the narrator goes into more detail about how and why God made Eve, and there's a lot going on in this in this chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. But the one thing that I find really fascinating, and especially relating to today's to today's discussion, is just that in this passage we see in multiple ways how how much man, that the man needs the woman. It's kind of what flipped what we might think of, but but here in this passage that's exactly what we see. We see it first of all when it, when God declares it's not good for man to be alone. That, that's, a, that's a radical declaration of, of the fact that, that Adam, this man, that he needs uh, someone to, to be for, for his condition to be good, as declared by God. And then it's, the text says that, that God makes a helper suitable for him. So the idea here is that you know, Adam doesn't just need uh, a lion or a lamb or a goat. He, he needs something specific to him that can only there's, there's something unique that will meet his needs. And then you know the text goes on, and when Adam, uh, when Adam sees the woman and, and they get married, uh, the text in verse 24 says, "...for this reason that a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh." Now this whole phrase about the man leaving his family and joining the woman, uh, that's not actually what was practiced uh, in Israel or in most places in the world. Um, the man did not actually leave his family and go join his wife's family. What's going on there? I think is is t- depicting in marriage the neediness of the man and, and being joined to the woman, and um, and so for all these things, it's just it's Genesis two, and I, in my in my mind shows how much Adam is made complete by the woman, which is is of course comes all, all together when it says the two shall become one. So Genesis two supports Genesis one, and and just shows I think how valuable women were. Uh, to what uh, were created in the eyes of God and then uh, in the eyes of men, how precious they are and how special they are as a creative work of God.
1: Yeah, and when you think about it, it's really amazing that we have Genesis 1 and 2. As human beings, we want to understand our purpose and the way things are meant to be. And this is because God made us with intention and purpose, so we're just reflecting that reality even without realizing it sometimes. So, even The world, even outside of Christ, is asking these questions. I wish I knew what all this is for or how things are meant to be. Mm. And the thing is, God actually gave us the answer to those questions. He had it written down, a clear explanation of the meaning of our existence. Right, and of course, yeah. this doesn't fully answer every question we've ever had, you know, as we can see from the scientific debates that go on. But it does fully answer the question of who we are, what our value is, and how we are to relate to God and the world and one another. Um, So you know, when it comes to our value as women, when we want to know how God or how the Bible sees us, we don't want to look primarily at passages that occur within the context of the fall. We want to look to the two chapters that depict the world and human beings as God made them to be. That's Mm. our anchor. That's the foundation. And that's what we should compare all the other biblical stories regarding men and women. Mm. So if we want to know whether God thinks a certain behavior, our attitude is sinful, we need to compare it to Genesis 1 and 2. So, like a polygamy. Well, does that conform to God's design for marriage as depicted in Genesis 2? No. Uh, clearly, at base level, polygamy is sin. Something like rape, same thing. This is clearly not supported by this found, these foundational chapters. It's not in line with God's design for sex and for men and women. And we know that God views all rape as sin.
0: And those are, are, are really helpful um, ways to think about. We just said about you know making sure that when we're reading a story uh, in in particular the Old Testament and we're wondering like how does God view women like what's going on here, it's good to pause and think okay well how does this compare to Genesis one and two, and and to remember that that's our anchor that's the that's the truth as way God designed it and and. Um, you know, if we use it as an anchor, then then it helps us as we are reading the rest of the story. Because in Genesis 3, with the fall, what we have to realize is, go, is moving on from that point, uh, after the fall, the, the world is full of sin and wickedness. And that's what the Bible depicts. You know, that a- after chapter 3, uh, what, what our listeners need to understand and what, what we have to understand when we come to the Bible is that uh, the, from the fall onward, the Bible depicts a world that is just completely and totally infected by sin and wickedness. And from the fall onward, the Bible depicts a world where there is essentially nothing but sin, sin, sin. And, you know, in, in j- just a few chapters after uh, Genesis 2, uh, is, is Genesis chapter 6-5. It's after the fall, only a few chapters later. And here's what it says in 6-5 the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was altogether evil all the time. I mean, it doesn't get more condemning for us than that. Right, yeah. And even after the flood, you know, I don't think the Bible changes that, that viewpoint of humanity or of the world. Um, human beings after the fall, after rejecting God, are just wicked through and through. And so we never need to think that the Bible um, from Genesis 3 onward is ever calling good what God has called evil. And that anytime we see what we know to be sin in the story, we need to know that the narrator wants us to see it as sin, and that he expects us to see it as sin.
1: Right. So a great example is the story of Jacob and his wives, While the narrator never says directly, Jacob is wrong, Um, he does say it in another way, through Mm. revealing how awful and messy Jacob's family is. There's Mm. jealousy and bitterness between sisters, there's hatred and envy among his sons, these brothers, and Mm. we can look further into the future and see the ways in which Israel's constant disobedience and hard-heartedness toward God tie back to this legacy that Jacob created.
0: Yeah, and, and which goes back even to Abraham, and then that goes all the way back to Adam, and so you know what you just said about Jacob is true for David, for Abraham, or any of these so-called Bible heroes. You know, I don't think the Bible is is so much interested in propping them up as as you know heroes for us to idolize, as it is helping us wanting to, to hide, as it is about wanting us to see. Uh, how they trusted God, but then how far they fell short because of their sin. And as we see that, it does two things for us. It warns us against sin, and then it also helps us see how great and good and faithful God is. So these men, who in some cases did do things that uh, are, quite frankly, misogynistic, they're not the heroes of the story. God is the hero of the story um our struggle does not need to be that god or the bible is holding these men up as positive examples of goodness and virtue and perfection uh, it's not canonizing their sin what we should really wrestle with as as as, as believers is that well shoot if abraham did this if he, if abraham Passed off his wife as his sister and risked being, you know, having her be raped. And if David did things like murdering Bathsheba's husband and and marrying her, and if if other Old Testament people did all those horrible things, and we know it was because of sin, well, then what does that tell us about sin? And what does it tell us about the so-called best people even today? Um, I think it it helps us see just how bad sin is.
1: Yeah. So it's really important when we read these difficult stories. To remember that the Bible or God is not justifying these actions or these attitudes, mm-hmm. but it's showing just how wrong they are by the negative consequences that flow from them. Um, so, for example, if we look at Abraham and Hagar, um, and remember, this was actually Sarah's idea. <laughs> and every time I read that, I'm like, Sarah, what are you thinking?
0: Yeah, if I can just ask him about that same thing with uh, with Jacob. You know, people give Jacob such a hard time about Rachel and Leah, but... but... The two women, are I mean, they play a part in it, too. They're also sinners.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Women are not sinless. (laughs) You don't want to say that because someone's a victim, uh, they're somehow perfect. Right. But, um, but yeah, so God rebukes Abraham, and he tells him that Ishmael's descendants will be a thorn in Israel's side.
0: Hmm. And
1: he also experiences a lot of domestic strife as a result of that. And this is the narrator's way of telling us that this was sinful. Hmm. And then when you have David and Bathsheba and all the other women, um,
0: <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs>
1: you know, it's David's unfaithfulness in this regard that leads to his family being extremely messy and fractured. His you know, son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Her brother, Absalom, avenges her. Multiple sons oh, of David geez. rebel against him try to usurp the throne. Um, Solomon follows in his father's footsteps in certain ways, and he eventually just apostatizes. Mm. And eventually, further down the line, the kingdom splits because of all of these uh, seeds, these sins, and these these seeds of bigger problems. So,
0: man, yeah. So, which you know, quite frankly, beyond just the issue of of you know looking at women and misogyny, this is just, and we'll talk about this later, but just a, a helpful way of understanding the Old Testament in general. And uh, We'll talk about that a little bit more in, in mm, yeah. down, down because there's, I think there's, it's easy to misread what God wants us to see in, in the Old Testament um, about the consequences of sin. Um, so the first thing that, we, that, that we, we, we've brought up is that with these difficult passages, you know, the Bible's way of showing us that these things are sin is, is usually through the narrative itself, you know, through what happens as a result of the sinful acts perpetrated against uh, the woman. And then, the, you know, the second thing is I think it's helpful for folks to realize that the overarching narrative of the Old Testament is actually a tragedy. And, and you know, I think if we realize that, that would help us see, you know, as you talked about David and Abraham, if we understand that, that from the perspective of, of you know, Genesis 4 onward and Israel as God's covenant people, it's really a tragedy. Um, you know, that it, it, if you read all the Old Testament as ending at Malachi and, you know, for a second is reading it on its own terms, it, it's a tragedy. Uh, you know, it's like, like Shakespeare's Hamlet, for example, um, or Romeo and Juliet. A tragedy is when the main, uh, the, when the narrative of, of the story ends in the downfall of the central character. And so in Hamlet's story, Hamlet, Hamlet dies, and so do a lot of other people. And mm. Romeo and Juliet, they die. And that's why we call these things a tragedy. Um, well, In the Old Testament, it's a tragedy because it's telling us the story of Israel's downfall. You know, that Israel, in the end, uh, they go into exile. The, the, the northern, I mean, uh, ten tribes are just wiped out completely. And then two tribes are sent into exile and only a, a remnant return. And even after the, after, the, after the return, there's kind of this lack of fulfillment and wondering you know, what has happened. And there's this weeping and wailing. Um, and so from the very beginning, even the story of Adam and Eve, what we need to see is that their tragic choice to eat the forbidden fruit, while it, it's cosmic in its scope and, in, and universal for all humankind, it's actually told in the Old Testament as, as a backdrop for Israel. You know, in other words, that the Old Testament as a story shows us how Israel, over and over, reenacts the fall to her own destruction. Mm. So Israel is God's covenant people; they cannot escape the effects of the fall. David, Abraham, Jacob, you know, even as God is in the process of doing redemption, the fall is and sin is at work. And so over and over, as, as we see sin rearing, rearing its other head through the through the awful choices of people, well, sometimes which are misogynistic, we should see how, again, just how gracious and good and faithful God is in the midst of all of it.
1: Yeah, and this is really important because if we have the big picture in mind, if we know what story is being told in the Old Testament, that it's a tragic story of Israel's ultimate failure to be God's faithful covenant people then we don't need to try and gloss over these really ugly passages. God wants us to see the ugliness of Israel because He wants us to see that this is sin and that sin mm. leads to destruction.
0: Amen. And, and of course, what we want to say too is, is this, that's not the complete story. Um, you know, that's the story of Israel as God's covenant people, I, I might call it as, it as the kingdom narrative. You know, that's the narrative of Israel uh, from what we might call a political standpoint and its, its main focus is why did Israel fail? Why was Israel ultimately rejected by God and sent into exile? And that even upon return from exile, why does she still seem to continue to lack the fulfillment of God's covenant promises? So I, I would call this the kingdom narrative, and it's really what holds together the majority of the Old Testament. But There are glimpses of what we might call, you know, quote-unquote, normal people that do appear from time to time. And they help us to see that that outside of that overarching kingdom narrative, there were people, Israelites, who lived in faithful trust and obedience to God. So, for example, the story of Ruth is a wonderful one because it pulls back that political narrative and highlights what we might call everyday people living in the messiness of life and trying to trust and obey God in the midst of it. And it's, it's a beautiful story.
1: That's an excellent point. Um, I like what you said about that, Jonathan, this kingdom narrative. And so it's painting this big picture for us, and it's one that we need to understand to understand the coming of Christ Mm. and the redemption that God is planning and that He's working out. But there's always a remnant that's faithful to God, that's living in faithfulness. Mm. And that's really encouraging when you're reading the Bible in general, because as you're reading the history books of the Old Testament, when you're reading the prophets, Mm. it's pretty depressing. As you said, it's tale after tale of Israel's failures. Um, But we see at the beginning of the New Testament, in Jesus' day, there were Jews waiting for the time that God had promised through the prophets. Mm. They they had this hope. They were waiting in hope. And they were living in faith. And as you mentioned, Ruth is an amazing story. The story of Ruth and Boaz is so wonderful. Ruth's courage and protectiveness of her mother-in-law. Her determination to follow the true god and boaz's honor and the protection Mm. he spreads over ruth and naomi so ruth was a moabitess and she's so she's a foreigner and her people worshiped false gods in a brutal religion but she Mm. marries this israelite sojourning in her land um, and even though he dies she goes back with naomi to israel declaring that naomi's god will be her god And they discover there's a relative who could marry Ruth as a kinsman redeemer, which is a practice in ancient Israel that God instituted to provide for widows and keep the family line going. And we meet Boaz. We find that he's good to his workers. He loves the Lord. He protects and cares for Ruth Hmm. when she's just a gleaner in his fields. And when he has a chance to marry her, he does, even though it means personal sacrifices. So he's a good man and a true husband, and this is a picture, uh, in, imperfectly, but it's a good picture of what God intended marriage to be yeah. and what He intended life to be like for the vulnerable. So this was happening even at the same time that the book of Judges occurs, where you see some of those the just most appalling and egregious sin in the Bible. I think so that's
0: yeah, and and I, I personally believe there are probably a lot more people like Ruth and Boaz each or sorry in Israel at the yeah. time and we don't hear their story because as I said the, the, the main central narrative uh, uh, concerning Israel is really focused on why Israel failed to be God's covenant people and it's concerning sin and judgment and and faithlessness among her leadership. And, and so I think there were a lot of people like that though and, and they, they appear from time to time and it helps us see that we don't want to absolutize uh, you know the sinful choices of some. And and so, you know, I think these two things. I hope that what we've talked about are helpful when it comes to to addressing um, what what seems to be misogyny in the Bible, especially you know in the Old Testament. And so, the first is that when it comes to God's view of women, that Genesis one and two, they are our anchor. Everything else is commenting by negative example on how far you know the we as human beings have fallen from what God designed in Genesis one and two. And I think, secondly, we must read each story after Genesis 1 and 2 under the cosmic umbrella of the fall and of human depravity. From Genesis 3 onward, the Bible doesn't depict human beings as basically good, you know, but rather as wholly corrupt. And even the so-called heroes of the Old Testament as being deeply flawed and affected by sin. And so, when they make sinful choices, the Bible expects us to see it as sin, and to see the negative results that come from it as the warning for us. And then, you know, I think finally that the overarching story about Israel in the Old Testament as a nation, as a kingdom, is a tragedy. And so we have to read it with the end in mind. Why is Israel sent into captivity? Why is the temple destroyed? Why are they under judgment from God? Because from the beginning, Israel was a sinful people, a people born under Adam's curse, and her sin ultimately destroys her despite all of the blessings she enjoyed from God.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful, wonderful points, wonderful ways of thinking about um, these passages. And, and thank you, Jonathan. I really, I really like that summary there. And I hope what we can all see is that this hermeneutic, this way of interpreting the Bible is applicable about across a wide range mm. of biblical passages. You know, not just the stories we discussed here, Um, And not just things that relate to women, but many more. You can look at the Old Testament in general through this lens, and it helps you understand what God is saying to his people, both back then, for the original audience, and today. And that's actually all we have time for today, but uh, yeah, it's so fun to talk about this. I know, it's a (laughs) lighthearted topic, let's keep going. But come back next week, Uh, we're going to discuss the Old Testament laws that God gave Israel, which seem to support uh, misogyny and... um, And also talk about the importance of cultural attitudes and beliefs, which help us be better readers of some of these accounts. So thank you all for joining the conversation today. Conversations for Life is a listener-supported ministry of Cross Life. And Cross Life exists to equip and empower married couples and parents to cultivate life in the home. If you'd like to support the work of Cross Life in this podcast, you can go to www.crosslifetoday.org for more information. So until next time, take care and God bless.